Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As usual, I have a few notices to dish out before starting today's show. First, for those of you who downloaded the last episode on the day it was released or on the Monday after, you would have heard me talking about rabbits with absolutely no context at all. That is because, for some reason, the file that I uploaded to Blueberry, where I keep my audio files, decided to chop off the first third of the episode. It was fixed that Monday evening, so if you want to hear the whole episode, not just the final two thirds, then you need to delete that episode and then re-download it. The episode should be about 36 minutes long. Many, many thanks to listener Kimberly, who pointed this out to me via the comments page on my website and by email, just to make sure. Second of all, I thought that I would try something a little bit new. I've been getting quite a few emails and posts on the Facebook page in recent weeks. As the number of listeners has been growing, and some of them have been asking me questions which I've answered to the best of my ability. Now a lot of these questions are really interesting, and so I thought that I might make a feature of answering a listener question at the end of the episode. If you have a question that you would like me to answer, then be sure to get in touch and I will do my best to answer it. And, if you ask a really good one, it may even make it onto the podcast. Speaking of which, if you want to ask me anything, notice any more glaring errors that I make, or just want to get in touch to say how wonderful I am, then there are a number of ways to do so. My email address is queensofenglandpodcast at gmail.com. There's the Facebook page, Queens of England Podcast, where I post the episodes and any other podcast-related news. There's my rather neglected but still there Twitter page, at queenspodcast and my website, queensofenglandpodcast.com. And of course, there is the now perennial plea for you to leave a little iTunes review if you can spare a few minutes. Finally, in this episode, I will be focusing on Elizabeth as much as I can, and won't be touching on the other major woman in Edward's life, Jane Shaw. Therefore, if you haven't already done so, I would recommend that you listen to my guest episode on Jane for the History of England podcast, as it adds considerable colour to this episode. That said... This episode is packed with drama. It is the longest episode that I have ever done, so strap in and enjoy the ride. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 31, Elizabeth Woodville, daughter of a murdered father, sister to a murdered brother. I finished the last episode by describing the rise, fall and then super-rise of Elizabeth Woodville, culminating with her lavish coronation as Queen at Westminster Abbey in 1465. Today, we will look at Elizabeth's time as Queen of England. 
I teased you all at the very end of the last show by asking whether Elizabeth and Edward ever succeeded in persuading the people of England that she was a proper queen. The answer to that question, as we will see, is yes, but that did not make her reign any less turbulent. In the short term, the greatest consequence of Elizabeth Woodville being made queen was the influence of her relatives. Woodvilles, like I said last time, bred like rabbits, and so there were a great many mouths to feed with royal munificence. Elizabeth was just one of 13 siblings by 1465, and most of them were unmarried when she became queen. They had recently gone from being relatively unfashionable half-commoners to being related by marriage to the King of England, and so their stock skyrocketed. Now this did not all happen at once, it was spread out over a few years, but everyone knew what was happening. There are a great many competing interests at work here. For the Woodville siblings, this was all about taking advantage of their elder sister's crown by marrying into money and power. For Elizabeth, this allowed her to become surrounded by family, not just the sharks of the court, led of course by Warwick. For Edward, he needed to provide what historian David Lodes calls a aristocratic context for his new wife, legitimising his choice of her by elevating her status and that of her family. Some historians have suggested that this was part of a deliberate attempt by Edward to create a rival faction at court under his control as a counter the power of Warwick and the Nevilles and his own brothers, but I'm not convinced that destabilising the court to that extent was a deliberate policy of his. This was all about legitimising his rather ill-advised marriage. Okay, so are you ready for a lot of names to be thrown at you? Good, because here are the Woodville marriages. The first thing to do was to marry off Elizabeth's sisters to wealthy heirs. Margaret was married to the heir of the Earl of Arundel, Anne to the heir of the Earl of Essex, Jaquetta to the delightfully named Baron Lestrange, Catherine to the heir of the Duke of Buckingham, Mary to the heir of Lord Herbert, and Eleanor to the heir of the Earl of Kent. By marrying heirs, Edward and Elizabeth were ensuring that the future of the English nobility would be dominated by the children of the Woodvilles. This was forward planning, a strategy of entrenchment rather than temporary gain. It is easy to detect the hand of Elizabeth in making these matches, but her greatest influence seems to have been in the marrying off of her brothers. First of all, we have John Woodville, who at the age of 20 married the fabulously wealthy 65-year-old Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, Catherine de Mowbray, the aunt of the Earl of Warwick. Now, of course, old men marrying young girls, especially rich heiresses, was nothing new, but there was something that upset the medieval stomach at this match, not least how nakedly power and money-grabby this was, not to mention that it was a young man marrying an old woman and not the other way around. It was one thing for a noble person to snap a wealthy heiress, but for some jumped-up little parvenu? Uh-uh. No way. One chronicler slammed it as a, quote, diabolical marriage. The following year, she also arranged for her husband's niece, the heiress of the Duchy of Exeter, to marry her own son, Thomas Grey, despite the heiress already being betrothed to George Neville, Warwick's nephew. I think you get the picture. Now, these sorts of tactics are nothing new. You may remember Henry III's wife, Eleanor of Provence, who brought with her a whole host of men from Savoy, who suddenly came to dominate England. But there are a couple of reasons why this was particularly destabilising. The first was the sheer quantity of the Woodvilles. Second was the fact they all married domestically. Back in the day, these people would have been married abroad, as that was where the glamour marriages were usually found. With the exception of the quality heirs and heiresses, foreign matches were seen as being better, and therefore good domestic matches were found for people a little further down the food chain. 
Third was the heavy-handed nature of it all. Edward and Elizabeth did not act in a subtle way about this at all, and all of these factors combined to create considerable tension. Of course, it was Elizabeth who gets the lion's share of the blame for all of this, as she was A, a woman, B, not a king, and C, the symbol of the Woodville clan. It was not just through marriage, though, that the Woodvilles were advanced. Her father was raised to the position of Earl Rivers and appointed to the position of Treasurer of England in 1466, and the following year was made Constable of England. So Richard Woodville has gone from being a minor baron in 1463 to being the king's father-in-law and in charge of overseeing all the king's finances and the kingdom's army. That is a pretty unbelievable jump, especially when concentrated in the hands of a commoner. These were also lucrative offices, paying around £1,300 per year. Even when all totaled, he was far from being the most wealthy man in the kingdom, but in terms of patronage and possession of office, he was near the top. Now the sources, of course, all know what's coming next, and so frame this all in the context of Warwick's anger at it all. Let's remember that it is his relatives getting shafted or being married off to Woodfields while all this is happening. He's also seeing the leaves of power being taken away from his hands and given away, meaning a considerable drop in status for him. Warwick was the kingmaker, the richest and most powerful man in the land. Elizabeth being made queen behind his back and against his advice was a bit of a slap in the face, but he could take that. What he could not abide was the systematic erosion of his own power and that of his family and allies. According to the Crowland Chronicle, quote, There arose a great disagreement between the king and his kinsman, Richard, the most illustrious Earl of Warwick. The reason of this was the fact that the king, being too greatly influenced by the urgent suggestions of the queen, as well as those who were in any way connected with her by blood, enriching them with boundless presents and always promoting them to the most dignified offices about his person, while at the same time he banished from his presence his own brethren, and his kinsmen sprung from noble blood, together with the Earl of Warwick himself, and the other nobles of the realm who had always proved faithful to him. Now, this account is massively overblown, as Edward did not push away from court people like Warwick and his brothers, he just added a whole heap of new ingredients to the mix in the Woodvilles. But, you can see the Warwickian propaganda here. An upstart queen whispering into the ear of the love-struck king, pushing her own interests and that of her upstart family ahead of the interests of the proper establishment men of the kingdom, people like Warwick. According to another account, this time written by a Polish merchant, quote, The King of England had the Queen's friends and brothers live with him and made great lords of them, although they or their knights had been beheaded and had been traitors to the King and Warwick and his friends who helped make him king, he no longer regarded at all. Finally, the most colourful and my personal favourite account comes in the Chronicle of London. After describing how prominent Woodville's got high-profile jobs and marriages, the Chronicler write, quote, And thus kindled the spark of envy, which by countenance grew to such greater blaze and flame of fire, that it flamed not only through all England, but also into Flanders and France. This is clearly one of those prophetic after-the-fact type stories, but it does hit the nail on the head here when it talks about envy, because at the end of the day, that's what all this was about. The Woodvilles now had power. They were not at all a hugely coherent group, nor were they even the most powerful faction in the kingdom, but they dominated the court and had gained all high-status marriages. This used to be what Warwick did. He envied the Woodvilles, and he would go to extraordinary lengths to grab them back. He made his first move in 1469. 
Unrest broke out in Warwickshire in the spring. Whether Warwick was behind it or not is not clear, but it was quickly broken up. But trouble rose up again in the summer, and this time it was definitely instigated by Warwick and his allies. He also arranged for his eldest daughter Isabel to marry Edward's brother, the Duke of Clarence, a clear sign that he was preparing to replace one son of York with a more compliant one. Edward advised the Woodvilles to seek shelter, and then prepared an army to meet this threat. Elizabeth and the children took shelter in Norwich, and anxiously awaited news of Edward's attempt to quash the rebellion. As it happens, when the battle finally took place at Edgecote in Oxfordshire, the king wasn't present, and his squabbling commanders made a right pig's ear of the whole thing, and were defeated. Edward was himself captured on the way to the fight. Now, Warwick was not at all a forgiving man. If you crossed him, you lost your head. Not only were Edward's commanders killed either by him or by the mob, but he also went after the Woodvilles who weren't even at the battle. Elizabeth's father Richard and brother John, remember he was the one that married Warwick's 65-year-old aunt, were arrested and entirely without even the pretense of a trial were beheaded. To justify all this, Warwick and Clarence issued a proclamation claiming that they were merely acting against, quote, the deceitful and covetous rule and guiding of certain seditious persons, and then names a whole heap of Woodvilles, though interestingly not Elizabeth. He focuses only on the men and claims that they caused England, quote, to fall into great poverty and misery, disturbing the administration of the laws, only tending to their own promotion and enrichment. While chivalry prevented him from killing her mother, Warwick did the next best thing when it came to Jaquetta of Luxembourg. He accused her of being a witch, and that of course played into the rumour going around the kingdom that Elizabeth had won her crown by bewitching the king. Where had she got her magic from? Well, her mother, of course, and so Jaquetta was caught up in all this madness. Warwick, however, seems to have had no coherent plan for phase two of this revolt, which was how to consolidate his position. The basic problem he faced was that he didn't have enough power or support to act unilaterally, and so needed the support of Parliament. But by the time he had got them all together, the kingdom descended into anarchy, because there really are only so many times that you can remove a king before a huge power vacuum starts to form. He also lacked support to do really anything of note, and so decided that the best play was to act through the king rather than deposing him and so he released Edward from his custody. The king was surprisingly gracious about the whole thing, and was happy, at least in public, to reconcile with Warwick, because like it or not, he needed the guy with the most powerful private army in the kingdom on his side. This reconciliation meant that Elizabeth could finally leave her sanctuary in Norwich, but she had no intention of reconciling with Warwick. If it had simply been a matter of him rebelling against her and calling her family names, well, she had a pretty thick skin but he had killed her father and brother, not to mention slandering her widowed mother with the most damaging accusation one could make of a woman in the Middle Ages. She wanted revenge, but for now was forced to stew. I mentioned that Elizabeth went to Norwich with her children, and this was an ever-growing bunch, as she started adding to her brood pretty much from the moment she married the king. As I have said a squillion times, the first duty of queenship was to produce children. Boys, of course, were key, but you need lots of girls, too, for marrying off. Elizabeth was every bit as fertile as her mother had been. Alongside the two sons that she had had with her first husband, Lord Grey, she had ten children with Edward IV in their 16 years of marriage, all but two of whom would make it out of early childhood. Now, I haven't talked too much about the rites and rituals of a queen giving birth to a child, 
but as you might imagine, it was quite the occasion. And for Elizabeth, we actually have an account from a visiting bohemian who described the palaver that was associated with this. It all started about a month before the due date, when the Queen would attend Mass and would be carried to her chambers on a canopied chair covered in comfy cushions to a bed emblazed with the emblem of the Virgin Mary. The room would have an altar and various holy relics, and prayers would be made before all the men left. No man would see the Queen again until she gave birth. After Elizabeth did finally give birth, she was still confined to her chambers for another month and a half for recovery. Once that was over, there was a great procession, and I will let the bohemian Gabriel Tetzel describe it. Quote, The Queen left her childbed that morning and went to church in stately order, accompanied by many priests bearing relics and by scholars singing and carrying lights. There followed a great company of ladies and maidens from the country and from London who had been summoned. Then came a great company of trumpeters, pipers and players of stringed instruments. The King's choir followed, 42 of them, who sang excellently. Then came 24 heralds and pursuivants, followed by 60 counts and knights. At last came the Queen, escorted by two dukes. Above her was a canopy. Behind her were her mother and maidens, and ladies to the number of 60. If that all sounds familiar to you, then it's because it was very similar to the way that she had been conveyed to Westminster Abbey for her coronation. Like I said, childbirth was the first duty of queenship, and so the birth of a child, even if it was only a girl, in medieval eyes, was still an occasion not far distant from a coronation. After that, Tetzel describes everyone sitting down to a great feast. He continues, quote, While we were eating, the king's gifts were distributed amongst his trumpeters, pipers, jesters, and heralds, the heralds alone receiving 400 nobles. All those who had received gifts went around the tables, crying out what the king had given them. The queen sat alone at the table on a costly golden chair. The queen's mother and the king's sister had to stand some distance away. When the queen spoke with her mother or the king's sister, they knelt down before her until she had drunk water. Not until the first dish was set before the queen could the queen's mother and the king's sister be seated. The ladies and maidens and all who served the queen at table were all of noble birth and had to kneel so long as the queen was eating. The meal lasted for three hours. Talk about the visuals of power. Now, it would be easy to see Elizabeth as being enormously arrogant and rude by this description, but it seems to have been pretty standard procedure. To have deviated from it would have proved to everyone that she was the uncouth commoner they all suspected her of being. What we can see here is the massive attention and importance that was attached to childbearing in the Middle Ages. It's very hard to know if this was a completely typical thing, or if once again Edward was rather overdoing it to compensate for the low birth of Elizabeth. This was for, I believe, the birth of Elizabeth of York, though I haven't seen that confirmed in any of the sources that I have read, but it certainly was for the birth of a girl. Imagine what would have gone on if this had been for the birth of a sudden heir. By 1470, however, the only children that had survived were girls. Her firstborn was Elizabeth, soon to be known as Elizabeth of York, and we will be talking a lot about her in the episodes to come. She was born in 1466, and was followed very quickly by two sisters, Mary and Cecily. Now, of course, Elizabeth was still young, and there was still potentially time to have a whole heap of sons, but the issue was that, as of 1470, when Warwick was again a powder keg ready to explode, Edward did not have a male heir. This meant the future looked unstable. If the king had had a son, then any attempt to use up him would have also had to use up his son, and that was just a lot more difficult to justify. 
Now, I talked a lot about Warwick's Great Rebellion in 1470 in my series on Margaret of Anjou, so I won't recover much of that ground again. To recap, Warwick went to France, agreed to marry his daughter and the son of Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou, raised an army with the help of the King of France, and invaded England, deposing Edward and reinstalling Henry VI on the throne in the so-called Readaption. Edward fled to the continent, but Elizabeth was forced to retreat into the sanctuary of Westminster Abbey with her children, where, theoretically at least, she would be safe from harm. One of the reasons why she had been unable to escape with her husband, though, was that she was pregnant yet again, only a month away from giving birth, in fact. Her circumstances were very different now from those described by Tetzel, but at least at Westminster she still had a lot of servants to help her, and so on the 1st of November 1470, she gave birth finally to a boy. She named him Edward after his father. This would have been a joyous moment for Elizabeth. One cannot overemphasize the burden put upon queens to produce sons. Imagine having that degree of pressure placed upon you over a process that you had very little ability to affect. Infertile queens were accused of being so because of some evil inside them. Queens who failed to produce sons, only girls, were seen as being failures, as having derelicted their duty. One might think that with her husband in exile and herself trapped in a dark and gloomy cathedral, that these sorts of things would end far from her mind, but that is to forget that the situation could change. The story of the Wars of the Roses up to that point was one of a swinging pendulum, and very often decisive victory was followed by crushing defeat. She truly had thought the situation lost and her husband's crown irrevocably taken by the Lancastrians, then she would have fled England at the nearest opportunity, or negotiated a deal with a new regime. We will see next time that she was willing to do whatever it took to, if she thought it was necessary, even negotiate with her worst enemies. But I think it's clear that she truly believed that she held in her arms the future King of England, and so she must have been mightily relieved and chuffed with herself for having achieved this prime imperative of queenship. As you all know, her faith was proved well placed, as a year and a half after being deposed, Edward returned to England and defeated and killed his three main rivals. The Earl of Warwick at the Battle of Barnet, the Prince of Wales at Tewkesbury, and King Henry VI in his cell in the town. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
Tower. According to one chronicle, after liberating London, Edward, quote, went to the Queen and comforted her that had a long time abidden and sojourned at Westminster, assuring her person only by the great generosity of that holy place, in right great trouble, sorrow and heaviness, which she sustained with more patience than belonged to any creature, and as constantly as had been seen at any time of so estate to endure, in which season nonetheless she had brought into the world, to the king's greatest joy, a fair son, a prince, wherewith she presented him at his coming, to his heart's singular comfort and gladness, and to them that he truly loved and served him. We can see here a few things. First of all, there is the classic notion of the strong husband comforting the woman who has been waiting anxiously for him to return, a trope so pervasive through history that it is recognisable to anyone. The second is a certain rehabilitation in the sources for Elizabeth. In the accounts that I've read so far, you can detect a very negative attitude towards her, mainly thanks to her influence over Edward and that of her family. Now, she is portrayed in a much more classically feminine way, as a loving wife, as a mother of the heir to the throne, bearing hardship for the good of the kingdom. This is not to say that her problems are over, but this episode did significantly increase her popularity. The Speaker of the House of Commons praised, quote, "...the womanly behaviour and the great constancy of the Queen." That may seem like a rather backhanded compliment, but at the time it was meant most sincerely. By dabbling in politics before, Elizabeth was seen as acting outside of her gender, as a man. Now, as a loving and concerned wife and a devoted mother of a newborn son, she was acting in a way that women were supposed to, and being a paragon of that virtue at that. In the past two years, she had lost her father and brother, seen her husband deposed in exiles whilst she was still eight months pregnant, and even then still managed to give birth to a healthy son and live to see Edward's restoration. Those were probably the scariest months of her life so far. So far. For now, though, things did manage to settle down a little bit. The first thing to do was to sort out the future education of her son Edward. He was invested as Prince of Wales as soon as possible, and a council was created to advise him and manage his affairs. On it were the Archbishop of Canterbury and his uncles Clarence and Gloucester, i.e. Edward's brothers George and Richard, and the new Lord Rivers, Anthony Woodville. But heading this council was not a man, it was Elizabeth herself. This era can be seen as one being dominated by sons who were in turn dominated by tiger mothers. There was Margaret of Anjou for her Prince Edward, Margaret Beaufort for Henry Tudor, and Elizabeth for her children, but most notably at this time, her Edward, the Prince of Wales, which is what I will refer to him from now on as there are just too many Edwards. The Prince was her fourth child with the King, but there was still more to come. A year later, she gave birth to a daughter who didn't make it to her first birthday, and after that, she gave birth to a spare, Richard, who would be invested as Duke of York. Following Richard, there were three further daughters and a son called George, who only made it to two years old before dying. Her final child, Bridget, was born in 1480, and so you can see that she was basically giving birth to children consistently throughout her reign as queen. This did limit her ability to be especially involved in high politics, as she became far more concerned with the upbringing of her children in the moments in between the months of seclusion while she prepared for birth and recovery. But she still made her presence felt. She would, though, never be free of the accusations of extreme nepotism. One of the great beneficiaries of the Yorkists regaining the throne in 1471 were the Woodvilles, most notably Elizabeth's brother Earl Rivers. He was given free domain to punish rebels in Wales, and basically ran the region in his own personal little fiefdom. 
Elizabeth's children by her earlier marriages, Thomas and Richard Grey, were given high-ranking positions in the King's Council. But in reality, they were not much more favoured than any number of high-ranking nobles in the kingdom. What she was doing, especially for her Grey sons, was to give them positions of state appropriate to their rank as stepsons of the king. Elizabeth was a fierce advocate of her son's rights, but she was not entirely insensitive to the complexities of the situation and never pushed for too much power to be placed in their hands. Certainly, the king's brothers were in no way edged out by Elizabeth's relatives, but the perception would always be there, no matter what the facts suggest. Even though Warwick was dead, there was still a faction that called that opposed and envied the Woodvilles, and the next person to face their wrath was Lord Hastings. When Rivers' position as Captain of Calais, remember a hugely important position as it controlled England's only standing army, was given to Hastings, the Earl kicked up an almighty fuss, and Elizabeth managed to persuade the King that Hastings may be plotting to betray England's last continental bastion to France. Some sources claim that this was because of a personal rivalry between Elizabeth and Hastings. According to Thomas More, she, quote, specially grudged for the great favour the King bore him. Edward, though, saw this for what it was, which was two factions at court competing in blood sports for his influence, and so declared that each side's accusations were baseless. This enmity between Elizabeth and Hastings will become a big deal in the next show. What this episode shows is that the Woodville clan at court, while not as powerful as some have suggested over the years, was still a powerful faction, and Elizabeth was not shy in showing her true Woodvillian colours when her family called for her support. The greatest political storm, though, of the second reign of Edward IV was an almighty tussle between Edward's brothers, Clarence and Gloucester. Now, I will cover this in more detail in a later episode, but to summarise it all, it started with an inheritance dispute. Warwick had been England's richest landowner, and so when he died at Barnet, his lands were divided between his two daughters, Isabel, who was married to Clarence, and Anne, who was married to Gloucester. With the succession to the throne secure with two male heirs, the two sons of York knew that whoever controlled the lion's share of the Warwickian inheritance would wield enormous power over the prince when he became king. Clarence was a massive, massive pain in the backside for Edward. Remember, he had allied with Warwick against Edward for a long time before double-crossing the Earl and rejoining Edward's side before the Battle of Barnard. Even when the dispute over Warwick's inheritance was settled, Clarence still made himself a right pain. Let's not forget, too, that Elizabeth loathed Clarence. It was his betrayal that had led to the deaths of her father and brother John, and she saw him as a threat to the inheritance of her son, the Prince of Wales. Now, the extent of her involvement in Clarence's downfall is disputed, but there are certain sources that make it very clear who they blame. The basic facts of Clarence's demise are these. When his wife, Isabel Neville, died in 1476, Clarence smelt a rat and claimed that she had been poisoned. He blamed a maid and had her judicially murdered. He then set about trying to gain another high-status wife. He tried to marry his niece Mary, so as to gain the Duchy of Burgundy, and when that was rebuffed, attempted a union with the sister of the King of Scots, which was also rejected because Edward simply, for good reason, did not trust him. Furious at these slights, Clarence left court, blaming the combined machinations of the Queen and Gloucester for him being denied what he believed to be his by right. A few members of his entourage were then convicted of using black magic to assassinate Edward and his son, but Clarence did not see the writing on the wall. He continued plotting, before finally being arrested and thrown into the tower. 
Edward went himself before Parliament, and thanks to his presence, a bill of attainder was passed, condemning Clarence to death. Famously, he is supposed to have been executed by being drowned in a barrel of Malmsey wine. Though this does seem a rather bizarre way to kill someone, not to mention a waste of perfectly good wine. Blame for Clarence's downfall seems to split into three basic camps. One, Clarence deserved it, he was an idiot. Two, Gloucester, the future Richard III, did it, so as to clear away an obstacle in his path to the throne. Three, Elizabeth did it, out of a combination of revenge for the death of her relatives, concern about the inheritance of her children, and jealousy of his power and position. Supporters of option three include our old friend Dominic Mancini, who wrote, quote, The Queen remembered the insults to her family and the calumnies with which she was reproached, namely that according to established usage, she was not the legitimate wife of the King. Thus, she concluded that her offspring by the King would never come to the throne unless the Duke of Clarence was removed. And of this, she easily persuaded the King. The Queen's alarm was intensified by the comeliness of the Duke of Clarence, which would make him appear worthy of the crown, besides which he possessed such mastery of popular eloquence that nothing on which he set his heart seemed difficult to achieve. Accordingly, whether the charge was fabricated or a real plot revealed, the Duke of Clarence was accused of conspiring the king's death by means of spells and magicians. When the charge had been considered before a court, he was condemned and put to death. Mancini then goes on to describe the grief of Gloucester, who withdrew from court, retreating to the north and quelling revolts. Mancini goes on to say, quote, By these acts, Richard acquired the favour of the people and avoided the jealousy of the Queen, from whom he lived far separated. After the execution of Clarence, and while Richard kept to his own lands, the Queen ennobled many of her family. Besides, she attracted her faction many strangers and introduced them to court, so that they alone should manage the public and private business of the Crown, surround the King, and have bands of retainers give or sell offices, and finally rule the very king himself. This view of Elizabeth as the selfish, jealous puppeteer of Edward is a constant refrain of many sources throughout her life, and so it is unsurprising to see it expressed once again here by Mancini, who very rarely has anything good to say about women in his account. Thomas More is rather more balanced, stating that he was not sure if it was either the fault of Clarence that this all happened, or if it was, quote, due to the queen and the lords of her blood, who highly maligned the king's kindred. More is no fan of Elizabeth either, even though she was his king's grandmother, and continually accuses her of being vain and jealous of any noble seen to have the king's favour. But as I said, this was not the universal view of the sources, and many of them, including the Chronicle of London, Crowland Chronicle, and Philip Commons, to name but a few, do not mention her, nor is she mentioned in the Bill of Attainder that was passed by Parliament. However, it is hard to believe that Elizabeth would not have revelled in the downfall of her treacherous brother-in-law. His desertion of the royalist cause cost the lives of her father and brother, as I have said, and now she had her revenge. Whether she instigated this all, or whether she merely fanned the flames, this would have been something she would have loved to see. In my view, for what it's worth, I find it very hard to believe she did not play a part in it. The events that I've described thus far are things that Elizabeth is well known for, but what is less well known and talked about is her other activities on the throne. To read some accounts of her life, you would have thought that all she did was engage in flagrant nepotism, give birth to a ton of children, and hide in Westminster Abbey while on the throne. But there is far more to her than that. In fact, Elizabeth was in many ways a classic medieval queen. If we go back to basics on queenship, then queens were supposed to a. bring some material advantage, be it land, money, or reputation, 
B. Produce lots of sons. And C. Support the king in whichever way he wished, but using her femininity rather than acting like a man. Now, we know that she failed A spectacularly, though that is hardly her fault, and that she very much accomplished B with her massive brood, but she was also very influential in ways that a queen was supposed to be in fulfilling three. Her influence over the king in promoting the fortunes of her family were frowned upon to say the least, but she did also accomplish an influence of a more traditionally feminine nature. I've already talked about how she took a keen interest in her son's education, but she did that also for her other children. She knew the value of the good education that she had been given as a child, and was keen to ensure that the same advantages were passed to her kids. She was also good at being the convivial court hostess. A great example of this is in the visit of a Burgundian noble to the court in 1472. Louis de Grisez had sheltered Edward while he was on the run from Warwick, and on his reaccession to the throne, invited him over to be invested as Earl of Winchester. He also threw a big party. A witness to this all recounts it. Quote, the king had Grisez brought to the queen's chamber, where she sat playing with her ladies at a ball game, and some of her ladies and gentlewomen at nine pins of ivory, and dancing, and at some diverse other games. The next day, after the king went out hunting with Grisez, quote, the queen ordered a great banquet in her own chamber, at which King Edward, the queen, my lady Elizabeth, the king's eldest daughter, and then he goes on to list a ton of people who attended the dinner. There was a dance afterwards, and then, quote, about nine o'clock, the king and queen, with her ladies and gentlewomen, brought Lord Grisez to three chambers, all hung with white silk and linen cloth, and all the floors covered with carpets. There was ordained a bed for himself, of as good down as could be obtained, the sheets of wren cloth, and also fine fustians, the counterpane cloth of gold, furred with ermine, the canopy also shining cloth of gold, and the curtains of white sarsnet, and for his bed sheets and pillows they were of the queen's own ordnance. What we have here is the king and queen acting as exemplary hosts, with them following two very prescribed roles. Edward does the manly things, like discuss matters of state and go out killing things with the new earl. Elizabeth helps arrange the food, the entertainment, and supervises the fancy and expensive lodgings. She would have been deeply involved in the finer details of the very fancy room that the writer just described, and I didn't even mention the other two fancy rooms. There are also expensive clothes and food in there too. This is the Queen acting as the royal hostess, and Elizabeth seems to have been very good at it. Not that everything that Elizabeth did was so domestic. She did also get involved in matters of government. In his second reign, Edward got involved in the great English medieval traditions of fighting with France and Scotland. Close neighbours mean for bitter rivals. His conflict with Scotland was mainly handled by his brother Gloucester. The war with France was much more important and merited his full attention. Remember that the French king had harboured and supported Margaret of Anjou, and Edward's Burgundian allies had been at loggerheads with the French for some time. Now, it is a good deal more complicated than that, and I, but I won't be getting into too much detail. But what it boils down to is Edward leading a massive army into France in 1475. This was dangerous for many reasons, not least because he was leaving the government of England in the hands of others, and given the climate at the time, it is not hard to see how ambitious nobles with their own private armies might see this as a great opportunity to seize the crown. Edward, therefore, needed to leave someone whom he could trust in charge, someone who could be relied upon not to attempt to usurp him. His choice was to go back to the tried and tested Norman method. He left his son, the Prince of Wales, in charge, but since he was only four, the real person in charge was Elizabeth, who led a council of leading nobles. Before he left, he wrote out his will. In it, 
He planned to disperse lots of money this way and that, and laid out his plans for the maintenance and marrying off of his children, and for Elizabeth to be given a generous pension. He named his son and wife as executors of the will, empowering them to do whatever they thought best. The two were also put in charge of the choice of husband for Elizabeth's daughters, and money was set aside for dowries. In the end, the invasion was not much more than a glorified raid, and so Elizabeth had little time to exercise any of her powers as regent. And of course, Edward survived, so she had no need to take charge of his funeral. But this document does show the fact that he trusted his wife greater than any other member of his family. She still had surviving brothers and his mother, but the fact that he chose his wife to be in charge of his finances and estate shows the remarkable partnership that the two maintained throughout their marriage. Elizabeth was always seen as a queen able to sway the mind of her husband, and though all of this was often used against her, especially when it came to distributing land and titles to her family, this was something that queens were supposed to do. Elizabeth was used as a back channel by nobles who had failed to gain the favour or attention of the king, something made clear in numerous cases, most notably when she helped former agent of Queen Margaret against the Lord Mayor of London. In the marriages of her children, it seems that Elizabeth was involved but was not the main instigator. Despite his own unconventional marriage, Edward saw the benefits of using his children in the diplomatic game, and dangled most especially his eldest daughter Elizabeth and heir the Prince of Wales as juicy carrots in negotiations with foreign kingdoms. That said, it is hard to believe that the Queen was not involved to some degree, given the great deal of attention that she paid to the upbringing of her children, but sadly we don't know enough to do more than guess. She was a far less expensive queen in terms of upkeep than her predecessor Margaret of Anjou, but then again that was hardly difficult as Margaret was the most expensive in English history. The majority of her income came from her estates and was supplemented from the treasury. She did claim the queen's gold, a tax used to fund her expenses, but she took far less than many of her predecessors. She also seems to have taken a great interest in the upkeep of her estates, understandable given that it was from them that she derived most of her income. We have surviving a very stern letter that she wrote to a Sir William Stoner, reprimanding him for illegally hunting deer in one of her forests, telling him that she intended to prosecute him and demanded that he immediately desist. If he did not comply, she tells him, quote, You will answer at your peril. Elizabeth was a no-nonsense woman in her business dealings and had no fear in giving high-born nobles a dressing down. She was certainly no shrinking violet, as letters, for example, to the Earl of Oxford show ordering him to pass judgment on a land dispute, and I don't use the word order lightly. She did not let her low birth or her gender get in her way, and it is clear that people were forced to take her seriously. Edward undertook a lot of building projects while on the throne, undertaking renovations on buildings that had lapsed into decay during the decades of civil war, and Elizabeth was involved in this too, supervising work done on her own apartments and at Elton Palace. She does not have a great reputation for patronages of places of learning, but with one notable exception. You may remember that Margaret of Anjou had founded Queen's College Cambridge during her reign. Well, during the Civil War, the college suffered from underfunding, but Elizabeth took up the mantle of the college's patron and saved it from ruin, despite it being a Lancastrian foundation. Finally, there is piety. Elizabeth was middling when it came to this, she did go on pilgrimages, gave money to shrines, and did give pious donations, but these were all of an amount that was acceptable, but not notable. She certainly did not match the piety of some of her predecessors, but nor was she seen as the Devil Queen. In all then, when one looks at the queenship of Elizabeth Woodville, outside of the great tumultuous events of her time, we can see a woman who did all the normal queenly things. It is easy with these big-name queens who got involved in big-time events to forget that they are much more than just actors in the drama. 
As a queen, Elizabeth had a job to do, and by all accounts, she did it pretty well. Most of the problems that she faced in her reign were rooted in things over which she had no control. Her common birth, and and the vain ambition of certain nobles such as Warwick and Clarence. That said, she was far from perfect. Whichever way you swing it, the handling of the patronage of her family was bungled, and the stain of nepotism would never go away. And her feud with Clarence, which quite probably led to his death, meant that when Edward died, there was only one man left with the power to make or break the kingship of her preteen son. But the king was still relatively young and healthy, and there was no reason to suspect that he would pop his clogs any time soon. Right? Next time, Edward pops his clogs, throwing the kingdom once again into turmoil. Elizabeth does everything she can to ensure the peaceful succession of her son, the Prince of Wales, but to no avail. Remember to send your questions, rate and review the show, and join us next time in the concluding episode on Elizabeth Woodville, where we will see her become the target of yet another Son of York. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.